0: It's good to see everyone. It's good to be here. If you were here this morning, I hope that you'd agree that it's been a great day. There's no better way for us to start a week. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation 14. While you're turning, I'll let the visitors know that I am not the preacher. I'm not even close. Um, I think about what Roger said when he was up here several months ago. And that's, man, how daunting it is to stand before you and to be considered teacher. I don't consider myself to be teacher, not even close, not in a setting like this. But what I do want to be considered as is a man willing to contribute to the work of the church here. I hope I can be considered as a man willing to step out of his comfort zone to speak the truths of the Bible. And I hope that God will consider what we've done today and what we're doing this evening as pleasing to Him. Tonight we continue what the elders have entitled the lectureship. This is ten lessons by ten different men in the church, all revolving around a common general theme, follow the Lamb, follow Jesus wherever He goes. It's taken directly out of Revelation 14.4. I'll read Revelation 14, 4. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. This section of verses refers to a group of people called these. I think it's helpful to ask, who is John talking about? The ones that have been purchased from the earth. The ones that have not been defiled. The ones that are found blameless. So what's John talking about? Who fall into the category of these? It's those of us whom Christ will welcome into heaven. The ones that get to spend eternity with God. How do we ensure that we get to spend eternity with God? That we'll be welcomed into heaven? Well, we follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We imitate Jesus. We take up our cross. We submit to His will, His teaching, His example, and the teaching of His apostles. I've enjoyed the study. I think there's so much that we can glean from the life of Jesus, from His teaching and from His example. Tonight we consider how beneficial it is to follow Jesus into the wilderness. Our plan for tonight is to make a few general observations about temptation, and then we'll go through Matthew, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, verse by verse. It'll be our main passage, and we'll draw out applications. Some goals that I have are hopefully that I'll pique your interest into studying this time in Jesus' life. There's no way that I can do it justice. And I hope that we'll get a better understanding of the devil, how he tempts us, and how we can resist temptation. And I pray that God will be glorified. General, observa- general observation number one is being tempted is not a sin and it's not God tempting us. We're going to be tempted, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. James one thirteen says, let no one say when he is tempted. Temptation is not something that we can outgrow, we can't be too young for it. We can't be such a great Christian that we're not affected by temptation. When I think of men in the Bible that were able to overcome temptation, I automatically think of Joseph and and of Daniel, two men that really there's nothing negative said about them in the Bible. Joseph was tempted. We know the story of Joseph being tempted by Potiphar's wife. He didn't compromise. He overcame. Potiphar's wife, she tempted him to sleep with her. She spoke to him day after day. And we realize that temptation is not just a one and done, that it can be persistent. Daniel was tempted to eat the king's food. I've read that he was probably in the age range of between about 12 and 15 when he was tempted to do this. He was steadfast. He did not compromise and we realize that being tempted is not just an old person thing. Later in Daniel's life, we read about him not being tempted, not to, um, to pray to God. I've read that he was probably in his 70s, maybe, maybe older. He stood firm and we realize that being tempted is not just a young person thing. So what's a possible way of defining temptation? If you look it up on your phone, one of the first things that pops up is the desire to do something, especially something wrong or unwise. After my little bit of study, I've added it's a choice between doing what is right and wrong with right and wrong being defined by God. It's a test in which we have the opportunity to pass or fail with God being the one grading the test. If Joseph was tempted, if Daniel was tempted, we'll study Jesus being tempted. There's no doubt that we're going to be tempted as well. But being tempted is not a sin, and God is not the one tempting us. In James 1.13, we read that it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. I think it's encouraging that Satan has to ask God for permission to sift Simon Peter. He wants to break him down. He wants to tear him apart. But in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, we find that Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. He has to ask permission. God allows Satan to be tempted by Job. We know the story. And God could have told Job, Satan, no. But we read, he says in Job uh, 1, 1, uh, In verse 12, God says, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. I think it's encouraging that God sets boundaries on what Satan can and he cannot do. Sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking that we're the only ones facing a certain issue. But we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that temptation is common to all no temptation has overcome you but such is common to man and we're giving a way out resisting tempt- temptation is not the easiest route but we are giving a way out back to 1 Corinthians 10:13 paul says through god who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to beyond what you are able But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Being tempted is not a sin, and God is not the one tempting us. General observation number two, Satan is relentless and has been trying to undermine God's God's plan since the beginning. If we talk about temptation, we've got to spend just a few minutes talking about the devil. It's not something that we want to do. But it's impossible to think that we can overcome our opponent unless we know his tactics. We want to be aware of the devil's devices. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, it reminds us not to give the devil the advantage. It says we are not to be ignorant of his schemes. Schemes like pride. We talked about the Pharisees this morning. Pride was part of their downfall. Schemes like envy or anger or temper. Schemes like disappointment, discouragement, doubt, and division. But we find in 1 John 2.16 that all of these schemes, all of these tactics, they fall under three categories. I'll read 1 John 2.15, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. A lot of us guys, we have toolboxes. They can be four, five feet tall. They're full of tools for every occasion. And I don't want to make light of it, but Satan has a toolbox. It's a small toolbox. Within it, he's got three tools. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We'll continue to talk about these more as we get into matthew 4. by the third chapter in the bible satan is at work tempting eve he sets his sights on destroying the human race we find out that he's sly he's cunning he's intelligent and we realize that satan succeeded at bringing sin into the world but we also know as christians that he did not he has not and he will not succeed at derailing God's plan. In 1 Peter one um, one twenty-one, we read, "...who raised Him from the dead, God raised Jesus from the dead, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." Satan brought sin into the world through Eve. Time and time again, Satan tried to end the line of Christ it must have been a great day for Satan when Cain killed Abel. But after, after Abel was killed, came Seth. And out of the lineage of Seth, Jesus was born. There's, surely Satan must have thought he could have the upper hand over God if he could annihilate his chosen people, the Israelites. But Satan forgets God's promises always comes true. Early in the life of Jesus, Satan tries and fails to have Jesus killed through Herod. Satan has been trying to undermine God's plan and people since the beginning, and he's still trying to undermine God's people to this day, the church. Why does he do this? Sometimes we hear that once we're saved, we're always saved. Why does Satan want us to fall for temptation and into sin? Because he knows that if he can get us to fall into sin and be okay with living in it, he has us. At some point, we are no longer children of God. We become children of Satan. Ezekiel eighteen twenty-four reads, But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed, and his sin which he has committed. For them he will die." In our middle school class, we've been studying uh, the book of Judges. Most recently, or recently, we studied Samson. Samson was to be a Nazarite, someone that set apart, as Christians were to be set set apart. Samson was to not have any contact with the fruit of the vine. He wasn't to touch a dead body, and he wasn't to have his hair cut. I can't tell you the precise time when God determines to no longer be with a Christian, but I can tell you that a time may come where we're baptized, we're joined to God, and a time may come where we're no longer joined to God. There's Samson probably had some contact with the fruit of the vine as he's walking through the vineyard when he kills the, kills the lion. Probably had contact with the fruit of the vine when he's at the pagan wedding feast. There's no doubt that he touched dead bodies when he killed the 30 Philistines and stripped them of their clothes and God remained with him. But a time came when, he cut, when his hair was cut that he arose from his sleep and he realized that God was no longer with him. Judges 16, 20, then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Satan's been trying to undermine God's plan since the beginning, and now his focus is on us. General observation number three is the temptation of Jesus... In the wilderness is possibly the most important event in history other than the cross. We won't spend much time on this, but Satan knew that just one single sin would have made Jesus deserving of eternal death, and Satan knew that without a Savior there could be no salvation. Satan failed at undermining God's plan, he failed at tempting Jesus, Jesus overcame, and now we have an opportunity to be on the winning side. By Jesus not sinning, we have a qualified Savior, a Savior that was able to offer His life as payment for our sins. In the time that we have left, I'd like to go to Matthew. We'll begin and we'll, we'll go back to Matthew 3. It'll set up what we're studying. We'll go verse by verse uh, until we get to Matthew 11, uh, Matthew four 11. We'll make a few applications along the way. Matthew 3:13 Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him saying, "I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me?" But Jesus answered, answering him, said, "Permit it at this time, for in this for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." Then he then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Do we think that it's coincidental that right after this amazing thing happened in Jesus' life, that, um, that the devil attacks him. We learned it in middle school. Uh, Isaac Newton gets the credit for it. Every action brings about an opposite and equal reaction. It's like this, we're about to go into a hot Alabama summer. If during the summer you go outside during the night, it's dark, you're okay. But the minute that you turn on the lights or the flashlight, it's like every bug in the South wants to suck your blood. Well, as Christians, we're told to be the light of the world. But we find out that if we turn that light on at work or in in the break room or in the classroom, sometimes the bugs come out. You know, we may be challenged, we may face resistance, or we may be ridiculed. and. And I don't say this to scare us, we just want to be aware, we, want to, we don't want to be naive, we want to have a good understanding of, this, of Satan's tactics. We just read Matthew 3, the end of Matthew 3 where Jesus was baptized. The gates of heaven are open, the Spirit of God was descending on Jesus. The voice of God says, this is, whom, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And then it's as if the gates of hell are open and Jesus is being attacked by the devil. The children of Israel are rescued from the bondage of the Egyptians. And then a few verses later, they're being attacked by the Midianites. In Matthew 17, we read about the Mount of Transfer, Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, they see the face of Jesus shining like the sun, his clothes shining like light. God speaking loudly, this is my son. That's 1 through 13 of Matthew 17. In verse 14, we read about the disciples encountering a demon-possessed boy that they're not able to deal with. The longer you live, the more you realize the more time you spend with God, the more time you're going to have to deal with the devil. And if we're not dealing with the devil, there may be something wrong. An illustration imagine that you're in a in a war similar to that of the the world wars. The good guy is the new Christian the opponent is Satan. The new Christian fires the first shot it's obedience to the gospel he's hopeful he's happy he's full of joy he's confident and then what do we sometimes do well well we re, re, we relax. We say, I've done what God's told me to do. And we forget that we're still on the battlefield and we underestimate the enemy. Satan will hurl a barrage of counterattacks at us. And if we're not prepared, if we don't have a good understanding that Satan is real, if we don't know his schemes, we're taken by surprise and we retreat to our trenches. If we're not careful we become discouraged and Satan wins the battle. Satan is at work and he's going to use every opportunity he can to bring us down. Back to Matthew, Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew says that Jesus was led by the Spirit. The text doesn't say He was driven by the Spirit. It doesn't say that He was pushed by the Spirit. It doesn't say that the Spirit grabs Him up and takes Him somewhere against His will. Matthew says that Jesus was led by the Spirit. He allows the Spirit to be in control. The purpose of this lectureship is for us to become better imitators of Christ, to follow Him, to do what He does. He was led by the Spirit. Romans 8.14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Romans 8.5 says, for, the, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Back to Matthew 4.2. And after he had fasted for forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. Jesus fasted. Are we commanded to fast? No. Is a private time of self-denial advantageous when seeking God? Possibly so. Is fasting a means by which we twist God's arm so we get what we want? It's, it's not. Matthew six sixteen says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Down in 18, it says, So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but, your, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will, re, will reward you. So why might we enter into a time of self-denial? In 2 Samuel 12, David refuses to eat while his illegitimate son with Bathsheba is sick. Maybe we fast during a time of mourning. In Acts 8, it's interesting that Saul, Paul, Saul at the time, did not eat or drink for three days after being convicted by God. Maybe we deny self during a time of repentance. And then we read here in Matthew 4 that Jesus fasted before beginning His public ministry. Maybe we fast during an intentional time of drawing closer to God. Consuming less or no food, denying oneself from YouTube, from secular music, from Facebook, from TikTok, from Instagram, from Snapchat, while we pray, while we study, while we meditate on God's will, will prove beneficial as we draw closer to God. Matthew 4, 3 through 4 takes us to our first temptation. Matthew 4, 3 through 4. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What are some of Satan's tactics? Well, there's no doubt that he tempts Jesus and us when we're weak. When we're most vulnerable, Jesus is on the brink of starvation. He whispers in our ear, God's not going to take care of you. God won't provide for you. Take care of yourself. Turn these stones to bread. Satan says to Jesus, take matters into your own hands. Fulfill this human desire in an ungodly way. And he says to us, he may say to us, fulfill this emotional desire, this sexual desire, this physical desire, maybe even this spiritual desire, in an ungodly way. He uses the first tool in his toolbox, the lust of the flesh. Again, it all boils down to what we found in 1 John 2:15. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And what does Jesus do? He resists by quoting scripture. What do we sometimes do when tested? Well, sometimes we don't seek the full counsel of God. We pick and choose what Scripture works for us. In Acts 20:27, 20, Paul says, "For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God." Sometimes the entire will of God is difficult to hear. Bob read this morning in Timothy, in 2 Timothy, Timothy 3:16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. We spoke about being the light of the world earlier, going into the classroom or the break room. If we were to go into the classroom and in the break room and suggest that there's something man must do, man must do to be saved, most people are going to look at us like we're crazy. You could take them to Luke 13, 5, where the Scriptures clearly say we must repent. Maybe we take them to Matthew 10, 33, where the Scriptures say we must confess the name of Jesus, or to Mark 16, 16, where the Scriptures say we must be baptized. But most, most people want to stop at John 3, 16, believing in God. Sometimes we're hasty in our reactions. Proverbs 19.2 says, It's not good for a person to be without knowledge, and he who hurries his footsteps errs. Esau must have been in a hurry when he sold his birthright to Jacob. But if we slow down and we just simply categorize the temptation, is this the lust of the flesh? Is this the lust of the eyes or the pride of life? At least we haven't reacted impulsively. Sometimes we take matters into our own hands, questioning God's provision. We question if God will take care of us, if He will fulfill His promises. Abraham and Sarah question God's promises. But in Philippians 4.19, it says, And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we exploit our God-given desires in ungodly ways. We lack self-control. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And then in Philippians 4, 8, we read, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. How does Jesus respond to Satan's temptations? Well, He responds with Scripture. Scripture that He has memorized. Scriptures used in the correct context. And Scriptures in which He had a complete understanding. How should we respond? We've talked about how not to respond, but we should respond with Scripture, hopefully memorized, but used in the correct context and with a full understanding. Should we wait until the temptation is in front of us before we start using the Scripture to protect us? I like Matthew twenty two twenty nine. 29. It says, But Jesus answered and said unto them, You do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. You do err not knowing the Scriptures. Another way of saying this is, if you know the Scriptures and the power of God, you do not err. If you know the Scriptures and the power of God, you do not err. We must submit to, believe in, and trust in the Scriptures before the temptation is ever in front of us. I've been challenged throughout this study, and I hope that you'll be challenged also. Immerse yourself and be changed by the Scriptures now. Don't wait until a time of hes- testing in hopes that the, that the Bible app on your phone will bail you out. And you might ask, well, how do I do that? Well, if we believe the Scriptures, the many, many Scriptures to be true about the dangers of alcohol, decide now what the response will be when we're tempted by alcohol or, or anything addictive. If we believe the Scripture to be true about submitting to authority, decide now what the response will be when faced with the temptation to do as you please. Or if we believe the Scriptures to be true as it describes appropriate relationships, decide now how to handle relationships, how we won't put ourselves in situations making our commitment more difficult than it has to be. It's not always easy, but God would not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. He provides a way of escape. I heard it said recently, God did not create robots. When it comes to temptations, we're free to choose. We can do anything that we want to do. Whatever we want to do, we're free to choose. We're just not free to choose the consequences. We want to let the Scriptures change us. Back to Matthew 4, 5 through 7, the second temptation. We'll read. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test." It's interesting to me that Satan took Jesus to this high place, the pinnacle of the temple in the holy city. It makes me think that are high places fair game for Satan's attack? And I don't mean altitude. I think of things like promotions or advancements, achievements, captain of the team, first chair, leadership positions at work, leadership positions in the church. Satan knows that we're most vulnerable when we are raised up. It's after Samson led Israel for 20 years before we read about his famous episode with Delilah. David went from a shepherd to a king, and it was when he was king that he allowed his eyes to lead him into sin with Bathsheba. Throughout the Bible, it's a recurring theme. God requires lowness meekness humility so that we may be raised up when god calls moses and gideon these men respond with humility paul wrote i am the least of the apostles i don't even deserve to be called an apostle and john the baptist says he must increase so i so i he must increase and i must decrease satan wants us to be raised up He wants our hearts to be filled full of pride so that we might ultimately be cast down. We're familiar with the Beatitudes. They're in Matthew 5. I won't read them all, but it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, the gentle, the merciful, peacemakers. The world says gentleness, mercy, peacemakers are all attributes of lowness, weakness, God takes these type of people and raises them up. Psalms 34.18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 2 Chronicles 26.16 says, But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. And then Philippians 2.8-9, this is talking about Jesus, we're studying following Jesus, imitating Him. Philippians 2, 8-9 says, And being found in the appearance as a man, He humbled Himself. He became obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name of which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are, on in, are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Satan appeals to our pride to lead us into sin, and Satan distorts the truth of the Scripture. He says to Jesus, throw yourself down. He says, God will take care of you, and He might say to us, we talked about this this morning, don't worry about the details, don't even worry about living in sin, God's grace is sufficient. Satan is wrong, living recklessly or living in sin is not the answer. Is there anything more spiritually reckless than living in sin? Romans 6, 1-4 says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are, choo- we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Satan says to Jesus, If, I've read that this may, also, may possibly also be translated as since, if or since you are the Son of God. He may say to us, Since you're the manager or the superior, the boss, the leader. You have the authority to do whatever you want. Satan wants us to act on the second tool in his toolbox, the pride of life. He might also say, Since you're the least or the most insignificant, you deserve to get whatever you want. We see it on television and, and in ads all the time. You deserve it. So pursue it, get it, get whatever you want. You deserve it no matter what, is what the world says. What are we to do when tempted? Well, we want to quickly respond with Scripture. We don't want to be sucked in. We don't want to compromise. We don't want to rationalize. We don't want to justify. We want to trust in God's promises. What else are we to do? Well, we don't want to voluntarily throw ourselves into danger and then cry out to God for help. The devil told Jesus to throw himself from the temple because he deserved to be saved. Up to this point, we've talked about two of Satan's uh, tools, the lust of the flesh, turn these stones to bread, take matters into your own hands, and fulfill this human desire in an ungodly way. We've talked about the pride of life. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. It's a focus on self what we think we deserve, allowing our hearts to be filled with pride. Our third temptation is found in Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Again the devil took him along to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go away Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In this last temptation, Satan says to Jesus, "Look at this. You can have all of this. You can have all of this stuff if you compromise what you know to be what you know to be right." And Jesus says, "All this stuff All of this that you're promising me is not worth it. Jesus says, the Bible says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. We want to follow Jesus. We want to imitate Him. We've talked about Satan's tactics. We've talked about ways to follow or imitate Jesus. We've talked about reactions that we sometimes have, whether they're good or bad. And just for the next couple of minutes, I'd like to... spend the rest of our time talking about why Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6:13. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6. We'll read 10 through 15 in just a few minutes. As I read, I hope that you will consider the way you've been blessed. Your blessings, your family, your freedom, the opportunities we have, our health, I hope you'll consider the situation and place that we live in today, the nice cities we live in, the blessings that we have with being part of such a great country. I Googled it and on this earth, there are roughly 7.8 billion people. There's roughly 332 million people that live in the United States. So there's 4.25% of the world that lives in the United States. We're we're very, very blessed. Think about the abundance of satisfying food that we have, food that we enjoy eating. It's not just manna or rice or beans. We got to talking about grits the other day with some of the guys. All groups of people have a form of grits, whether it be corn or wheat. And for so many people, this is their main source of nutrition. That's not the case for us. We have transportation. We can travel thousands of miles very easily. We have clothing for all occasions. We take vacations. We carve time out of our schedule for leisure, while some people are working from sunup to sundown just to survive. Sometimes we spend more on our pets than many people in the world will spend on their children. We're very, very blessed. Satan says, I'll give you all this stuff. You can have all of this if you act on the third tool in the toolbox, the lust of the eyes. And Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. I want to read Deuteronomy 6.10-15. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you. Great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God is in the midst of you, is a jealous God. Otherwise the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. God says to the Israelites, at some point you're going to be surrounded by... You're going to have access to all these nice things. You're going to live in a land of bounty. It's going to be great. But you, will you be able to handle it? Will you forget me? Or you, will you remember that I am the one that's blessed you? I don't have the most vivid imagination, but the, but the description in verses 10 through 15 reminds me, reminds it reminds me of us today. Are the Israelites that had the, all, the only ones that had the opportunity to live a life of bounty? I think that we all fall into the category of living the life of bounty. <laughs> today, the church is God's people. Many years ago, the Israelites were God people. And out of His love, God issues warnings for the Israelites at the time and for our example now. He knows that they or we can be distracted so easily. He knows that they or we, we want what we want and when we want it. He knows that the devil would tempt them. He tempts us to compromise. And they go from being a nation and a people of conquest to a nation and people of compromise. When I think of compromise, I don't think that (laughs) I don't think of something that happens very quickly. I don't think of something that happens overnight. Like Samson, it's little compromises all along the way before we realize that we're separated from God. No doubt the Israelites said to God at times, what I want for myself is less important than what you want for me. The lessons in Matthew 4 and Deuteronomy 6, they're they're not just for the Israelites. If anything ever takes the place of God in our lives, it's idolatry. If we say, my will is more important than God's will, our idol is ourself. If we say, this earthly pleasure is more important, this hobby, making money, education. If laziness is more important, if notoriety or fame or praise, if anything in our lives ever takes the place of God, it's idolatry. If we allow stuff and things to control us, we tell God that His creation is more important than He, the Creator. Jesus knew, Jesus knew during His time of testing what was necessary for Him to receive His reward. He knew that He couldn't sacrifice His Father's will for His own will. He knew there's no shortcuts. There's no other way except through God's will. God is a jealous God. He requires our full attention and commitment. He requires us to deny ourselves and to follow Him, to take up our cross daily. He he requires us to be content, to emphasize self-control. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 39, He said this when considering going to the cross, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me Yet not as I will, but as you will. Our response to God should be, "It's not what I want. It's not what I think I need. It's the will of my Father in heaven." And anything less is idolatry. Back to Matthew four, Matthew four eleven. Then the devil took him and took him, dev, dev, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to serve him. Luke 4.13 says the devil left him until a more opportune time. The devil failed at tempting Jesus, but he plans to try again at a more opportune time. He failed at undermining God's plan. He failed at disqualifying Jesus to be the Savior we need. We want to learn from the account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Temptation is going to come our way, and Satan is relentless. He's been working at destroying man for thousands of years. He uses the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh to pull us away from God. And he knows that if we're not led by the Spirit, and we're not willing to deny self, his job is easy. The devil is going to win with so many people. He doesn't have to win with us. We've got to decide now that we will be changed by the Scriptures, that we will seek the full counsel of God, that we will be slow to react, that we won't take matters into our own hands, that we'll trust in God, that we'll emphasize self-control over our God-given desires, that we'll follow the Lamb, that we'll imitate Jesus. If we do this, we tell God that He and His will are most important that we love Him more than we love anything else and more than we love ourselves. I appreciate your patience. I've I've enjoyed this study. I apologize for going longer than I should have. I told Alan when he asked me to do this, I said, there's no way that I can speak for this amount of time. (laughs) But we don't wanna finish without offering the invitation. So as Jeff prepares to come back and lead us in a song of invitation, I hope that you'll consider a few questions in light of what we've studied tonight. Is God central to your life? Is He the most important thing in your life? Is it your desire that everything you do revolve around Him? Or do our actions tell God that He's just another spoke in the wheel of life? Do we occasionally step into sin, we realize our condition, we repent and step out? Well, let's decide to do better tomorrow than what we've done today. Or is it possible that, we, that you may have stepped into sin, and over time you've become content with staying in it? If so, the devil has you right where he wants you. If there's anything that we can do, we ask that you come forward as we stand and say